Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Y-W-C-A. 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 Y-W-Y-W-W. Y-M-C-A. Y. Oh, shit, I did it again. <laughs> Welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Today, we're going to talk about Jane Edna Hunter, pioneer real estate developer of social centers for Black women, founder of the Phyllis Wheatley Association. I'm Nardiri Rivas, rewatching Glee in Houston, Texas. <laughs> I'm Jessica Rogers, just finished watching the latest episode of Grey's Anatomy. And that is some bullshit. If you know what I mean, <laughs> this is March. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. <laughs> and I'm based out of Washington, D.C. <laughs> I'm Lizzie Rar, rewatching Gilmore Girls in San Francisco. All right. For our quick disclaimer, the three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, Please forgive us and send us a comment and we will all continue learning. Girls, get excited. Jane has a wonderful story of self-improvement and helping others. Ooh, yes, yeah, self-improvement. I love me a story on self-improvement. Agreed. Cannot wait to hear her story. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get to it. The time was December 13, 1882. The place, Woodburn Farm, South Carolina. Jane Edna Harris was born. Welcome to the world, baby Jane. She was one of four children. Her father was Edward Harris, the son of an enslaved black woman and her white overseer. Her mother, Harriet Milner Harris, was born on January 1st, 1863. Does that day sound familiar? Is that when President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation? That's right. Pretty big day. Yay! No official institutional form of slavery. But we know what really happens afterwards. 
Right. Yeah. A first baby step. Yeah. So by the time Jane came into the world, both her parents were wage earners, sort of. They were sharecroppers on the Woodburn Plantation Farm. That's a famous plantation, isn't it? Yes. It's an antebellum house in South Carolina. Today, it's a museum under the National Register of Historic Places. Actually, let's pause right here. What do you guys think about preserving antebellum architecture? Well, I think we would have to make the distinction between architecture and statues. Something has been brought up in discussions recently, actually. Yeah, if buildings are preserved in a way that's highlighting the architecture and is open about the events that happened there without glorifying the people, then I think it can sometimes be okay. Yeah. Right. I think it's important to recognize the architecture history as well as the actual history of what went down in these places, not to glorify parts of it and gloss over others. Exactly. Yeah, I think the idea of plantation houses could be an item for learning American history. And as a black person, I don't see the need to use it as like a place of celebration or to have events like weddings and galas. I mean, I've also visited a plantation house in person and maybe it's me or maybe it was the house or maybe it was what the house represented, but it wasn't a good feeling. I mean, it was interesting to learn about the house, architecturally speaking, and the mechanics that they had in place. But it's disheartening to be in that physical space, you know, like there's like weird juju and, you know, in these houses, there's always a discussion about spirits and stuff. And no, thank you. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's important not to hide that those things happened, but if they're going to be preserved, that they're there for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Well, back to Jane being a child at the plantation. Remember her dad was half black, half white? Oh, yep. Yeah. So Jane was a light skinned black girl. Now, some sources say that that made Jane feel superior to her darker skinned family members and friends. And other sources say that she was alienated by her mother. Either way, it wasn't until she was a teenager that she embraced her identity as a black woman. Yet, before she was able to do that, in 1892, her father died. Hmm. I'm glad that Jane, I guess, came to her senses. But I guess here would be a good time to talk about colorism. So colorism, for those of you that don't know, is basically the idea of rank based on the tone of someone's skin color. In slavery, lighter-skinned enslaved people would work indoors versus outdoors. And colorism still exists today, not just in the Black community, but several other communities of color. There's a notion of superiority between people and their different shades. So there can also be certain privileges between someone that is of a lighter complexion versus a darker complexion. That's right. We can see the effects of colorism during those times and still to this day. But back to 1892. So she lost her dad. Now the family was missing a wage earner and Jane had to go work as a maid to make ends meet. Was she working in the main house? No, she left her own family and went to live with her new employer. Oh, I mean, it was a terrible situation, but a little good came out of it. The daughter of her employer taught her to read and write. Mm. Education during that time and even today can be such a great resource. Yeah, so true. 
When she was 14, she had a chance to go to school and she graduated in 1900 with an eighth grade education. She was about 17. Okay. One day, her mom told her, I have this great fella for you to marry. He's got money so he can support us. His name is Edward Hunter. See, Edward, like your daddy. Good sign. <laughs> also, he's 57. Did I mention he's got money and his name is Edward? 57? 40 years older is a lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't you like how she glossed over that? Mm-mm. Casual-like. Yeah. <laughs> but he's got money. But, uh, like, anyway... We know that during that time, it was basically like once you got your period, little girls would get married. But this is weird AF. Yeah. Yeah. WTF. 40 years. It should be illegal, even with parental consent. Agree. That is way too much of an age difference. And it's hella gross. (laughs) It is. Yes. It really is. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Well. As you could probably imagine, um, Jane had zero say in the matter. And we started the story saying her name was Jane Edna Hunter. So guess what happened? Yeah, I was going to say, I assume she went through with it since her name's Hunter. But dang. Ew. Ew, ew. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Ew. Okay. Guess how long that marriage lasted? Two days. (laughs) Close. 14 minutes. I mean... 14 months, 14 (laughs) months later, (laughs) they were divorced. Shocker. I mean, sad they were divorced, but like, not really. No, no, but they're divorced. I thought he died. I mean, he was old as hell and maybe Jane poisoned him. (laughs) Like, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) I mean, he was old for her, but he wasn't that old. Yeah. But it's during that time, like, they ate a lot of pork fat. Like, he could have had a heart attack. This is south. (laughs) Jane didn't poison him that I know of. But anyway, single lady Jane moved out of that situation and attended nursing schools in South Carolina and Virginia. Finally getting out there to live her best life. Okay, cool. Starting anew. At 23 years old, she moved again to Cleveland, Ohio. But there she found nowhere to work as a nurse and nowhere to live. Places just flat out refuse to house black people from the South. The first place that took her in was a brothel. A brothel? Oh. Yeah, Jane had a real rough start. Then her mother passed away in 1910 and Jane was devastated. I think she carried that baggage they had when she was a little girl. And later on, she said that throughout her life's work, she wanted to give the world what she hadn't given her mother. Still, when her mother died, she fell into a depression. She needed a community, a support system. She dreamed of starting a shelter for single black ladies like herself. Oh, that would be really hard to lose your mom and have no one to support you during that time, especially if you're living in a brothel with a bunch of random ladies. I mean, unless they're friends, but it sounds like they were living separate lives. Mm. You know what, though? She probably saw some things living in this brothel. Also think that when you're out on your own, you begin to understand more and more the decisions that your parents made. It also Mm. seemed that Jane's relationship was strained. So when she passed, 
it must have been really hard for her, like all coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I also think Jane grew close to a few of the ladies at the brothel, but the environment was probably not the community she was looking for at all. And like Jessica said, living there, she saw some things. She wanted to get everybody out of there. So Jane held on to her dream, kept hustling, and then through a church connection, she met the office secretary to John D. Rockefeller's doctor. <laughs> I like how she <laughs> met a person of a person that knew the Rockefeller. Dang. It like that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Friends of friends are my friends. It worked out because that led her to nursing jobs and social connections that helped her get out of poverty and start investing in her dream of a center for black women. Get it, Jane? Uh, okay. There you go. Fast forward to 1911. She founded the Working Girls Association, a boarding home that sheltered 10 homeless, job-seeking, and working black women like herself. Dues were a nickel per week. It was the type of place she wished she would have found when she arrived in Cleveland six years earlier. It was the first institution designed to meet the needs of African-American women migrating from the South to the North. That's so great. I love that she's able to make it happen and create a space that she had personally experienced a need for. Mm -hmm. Very cool. That same year, she bought a two-story building and changed the name to the Phyllis Wheatley Home in honor of the African-American poet. Ooh, I know this person. So Phyllis Wheatley was the first African-American to publish a book of poetry. It was called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral on September 1st, 1773. Oh, nice. The Phyllis Wheatley Home had 23 dorms, an employment agency, and a summer camp to empower Black women and children. A year later, in 1912, it was renamed to the Phyllis Wheatley Association of Cleveland, or PWA. Look at that, growing into an association after only a year. Yeah, and it did so much. 23 dorms, employment opportunities, a summer camp. Ah, so cool. Yeah, but as always, you know, Hate is gonna hate. Mm. Mm. Upper class white women were not a fan. And also, plot twist, older and middle class black women were super ticked off by this. They all thought that Jane was starting a sort of self-segregation. They were calling the PWA the Jim Crow YWCA. Okay, first what? of all, the white folks back then probably didn't like the come up of black women bettering themselves. And also, I would think that the black women maybe saw it as a handout. Yeah, the white ladies don't surprise me too much, but I am surprised about the older black women and that they didn't like it. But I guess, like Jessica said, they felt like they should work for it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the white ladies, whatever. But the black ladies, I think they wanted to advocate for their right to join the regular YWCA instead of creating a separate one. They didn't see that as the best solution. So Jane was like, now hold on, wait a minute. The YWCA barely allows any black women to join at all. And there's a lot of us. So I'm just trying to build a self-sufficient community over here since we can't find it anywhere else. In time, she got more thumbs up than thumbs down. 
and the PWA's Board of Trustees became revolutionary for having black and white members. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, you sounded your accent was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's very interesting. If anything, I thought they would be upset about having an integrated organization. Yeah, I think it's great that more people were for it than against it, though. Mm-hmm. You know what, ladies? Our girl Jane seriously invested in real estate. Let's call her a developer right now. Just a few short years after buying the first two buildings, the association got a three-story building to home 75 people. Then, in 1919, they purchased the building next door and turned it into a school of music and a space for social and educational activities. Amazing. Whoa, she was serious. And I'm really impressed that she's able to do all of this, especially since it was really hard for Black people to buy real estate, let alone women to buy real estate. Yeah, it shows how much she fought for her dream. She made a lot of connections and inspired a lot of people to support her projects. Jane practiced what she preached of follow your dreams and study and work hard. She was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. She graduated from the Cleveland Law School. And in 1925, she passed the bar exam and became a member of the Ohio Bar. A casual law school stint? <laughs> what? LOL. Also, okay, so Jane started out with an eighth grade education and now she's a property owner. And a lawyer? Yeah, dang. Yeah. Two years later, she commissioned the construction of an 11-story building for Black women completed in 1927 that had apartments, a beauty school, dining facilities, and the Booker T. Washington Playground. Wow, that's really cool. So, Booker T. Washington was an American educator, author, orator, and advisor to multiple presidents of the United States. Yeah, it's also interesting that she had other programming as well, like the beauty school and the dining facility. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, she was really trying to help women better themselves. So Jane's story is really inspiring to me because she started with one dream, give homes for women who needed it. And then that developed into a place for living, recreational activities, skills training and job placement. Eventually, word got out that Jane was making good employees and she got grants from local businesses so she could keep things going and growing. She was able to grow the services her centers provided, adding daycares and apartments for seniors and people with disabilities. She was so determined. It reminds me of Jane Addams a bit and all of the things that they had at the Hull House. I love how they tried to create services that were helpful to the whole community, not just those that lived there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like this. Yeah. Don't think any of this fell into Jane's lap. She was networking. She was a trustee of Ohio Central State University. She was on the board of directors and vice president of the NAACP. And in 1937, she was a nominee for the NAACP Spin Garden Medal. So for some background, the Spin Garden Medal was instituted in 1914 by J.E. Spingard. He was also a part of the NAACP, along with being an American educator, literary critic, and civil rights activist. So this award was given annually to those that showed highest or noblest achievement by a living American Negro 
during the preceding year or years. It sounds like she was out there shaking and baking and getting stuff done, but also that people noticed and recognized her efforts. Jane was really driven by her mission to help people and create what she thought was a better life for her Black community. She was religious, and she saw her work as a battle between good and evil. And the big evil that was hurting her community were vices like alcohol and drugs and the corrupt politics that were behind it. Remember when she arrived in Cleveland, she lived in a brothel? So she saw all of it play out. Mm. This sounds like a plot of a Scorsese movie to me. It really does. Or a Francis Ford Coppola film. Oh, yeah. So she is creating these houses and communities to combat these Scorsese film backdrops, basically. (laughs) Well, every good movie needs a villain. And Jane had Albert Starlight Boyd, a black Cleveland businessman active in politics. According to Jane, this guy got his first wife into prostitution. So, yeah, his wife's pimp. And then divorced her. Lovely. Mm -hmm. And he ran like a criminal social center, a.k.a. Starlight Cafe. It had a tavern, barbershop, bathhouse, and a pub room. So pretty much the antithesis of the PWA. The opposite of what Jane stood for. Wait, he put his wife into prostitution? Also, Starlight? That's not a very intimidating alias. I know. Like, what? (laughs) Yeah, he clearly wanted to be a star and didn't want to do any good. Clearly. Her religious views, her surroundings made Jane real conservative. And she ran her center the way she wanted the ladies living there to lead their lives. By the same values and ways she did. She monitored them and focused on their reputation. In today's world, none of that would fly quite the same way. In recent history, she's been called a hypocrite because she argued women were masters of their own fate, but then she didn't allow the women living in her centers to live life however they saw fit. Yeah, it's interesting because she's trying to kind of let them become independent and learn how to be on their own, and yet she's still enforcing very strict protocols for them to follow so it doesn't necessarily allow them to do that right she wrote an autobiographical book entitled a nickel and a prayer which was published in 1940 she talks about her journey from rags to riches and her career helping women through the great migration and think about this she was a successful black woman which probably rubbed a lot of people the wrong way So she had to be careful to be self-promoting, but not too much because, you know, the U.S. was a no-flex zone for Black women. But then, not too modest because it would be disingenuous. She said, I have told the simple story of one who felt herself called upon to undertake and perform an apparently neglected but greatly needed task. If the recital of my humble efforts to be of service to Negro girls or women encourages in another like spirit, no more fit and reward can come to me. That must have been hard. I feel like even today, black women are having to walk that tightrope of how to present themselves in society, which is such a sad reality. 
That's so true. Like you can't seem very opinionated because you might come across as aggressive. You can't come off too confident because then it sounds like you're not humbled. It reminds me of like Mm -hmm. a little bit between like Serena Williams and Beyonce having to like go through that tightrope of trying to be humble, but still celebrate the greatness that they are. Black girl magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Three years after her autobiography, she founded the Women's Civic League of Cleveland. And she was the executive director of the Phyllis Wheatley Association of Cleveland until 1947 when she retired. By that time, there were Phyllis Wheatley houses all over the place in Connecticut, Illinois, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Minnesota, in addition to Ohio. I'm telling you, she was a national real estate developer. And what's even cooler is that other similar projects followed her model of housing and services. Wow. Again, I'm just so impressed at how widespread her developments in housing became. She was really so accomplished. Yeah. And I have to believe that these contributions led to aiding and providing resources for future women bosses like her. Yeah. She retired, got bored, and started the Phyllis Wheatley Foundation, a scholarship fund for African-American high school graduates. Then later, the foundation started another scholarship, the Jane Edna Hunter Scholarship Fund. Helping out future generations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. She retired, but not really, because mm-hmm. when does anyone retire? Any lady that we've talked about really retire? <laughs> they don't. She kept traveling, giving motivational and political speeches and writing for newspapers. Jane even visited the White House with Mary McLeod Bethune to discuss women's issue with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Whoa. Talk about connections. Mary McLeod Bethune was a civil rights activist who founded the National Council for Negro Women in 1935. Yes. Before she died, she left instructions in her will to leave a majority of her estate to the PWF Scholarship Fund. She passed away in Cleveland, Ohio on January 19, 1971. She lived a long life and she did so much. Yeah. It seems like she had a lot of influence despite her like pious attitude, I would think. Yeah. But Nergity, is the Phyllis Wheatley Association still a thing? Yes. The Phyllis Wheatley Association lives on as a multi-service community center in many locations for children, youth, families, and the elderly. One of them also has a Jane Edna Hunter Museum. All of her scholarship funds are also still going. So great. I would love to check out this Jane and the Hunter Museum. Sounds like a, a, an addition to our ARC Venture list. Yes, add it to the list. Also, people continue to spread her story and legacy. A book about her private life was published in 1990 called Jane Edna Hunter, a case study of Black leadership. In 2008, Professor Rhonda Robinson Thomas began the Jane Edna Hunter Project at Clemson University. They are working on a documentary of her life, y'all. Check out our show notes for a link to the previews. Whoa, I can't wait to watch that. Jane is so impressive to me. I think especially how she was able to do so much during the time she was alive 
And it must have been so tough as a black woman to get real estate and to do all of the things that she did. But she was determined and wanted to help others in the community and made connections to make it happen. So I really admire that about her. Yeah, this this lady, the way that you told this story, I think it brought a lot of things to light or made a lot of things that we are still talking about today. Like we talked about colorism and we talked about the antebellum South and if we want to have statues and buildings still created that honor these like horrific things. So like on the flip side, you see this woman that she was born from sharecroppers and then to create so much and a lot of what she did still impacts today. It's such a great story. I agree. I'm really happy that I got to tell her story this season. Now it's time for a karyatid. Lizzie, please remind us what this is. So a karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. In each episode, we present a karyatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. This time, our karyatid is going to be a little different. Ooh. Okay. Drum roll, please. Women leading the fight for housing in Brazil. Brazil has dozens of groups fighting for government supported housing, such as Front for Housing Struggles, Homeless Workers Movement and the National Housing Struggle Movement, to name a few. Their mission is to help the working class through housing policies of social interest with urban reform. They also advocate for access to services and education, and the leaders of most of these groups are women. Okay, that's kind of neat. I can already smell a connection with Jane. Uh, really? Yeah. From Brazil? Mm-hmm. It's a strong <laughs> smell. <laughs> Ooh, brigadeiros e feijados. Mm-hmm. Brazil's constitution states that land must be used in a social manner, guaranteeing the right to housing, drinking water, urban sanitation, street lights, health, education, and energy to all citizens. Some people interpret that to mean that all property must fulfill a social function, which to some people that means that if a building is abandoned, then citizens have a right to reclaim it. So what we would call squatting here. Interesting. So it's sort of a loophole. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder if it is a loophole. Yeah, I don't know. It's how some people interpret the law. So these groups help secure government funding to repurpose abandoned buildings. Now, full disclosure, most of the information I could find about these groups was in Portuguese, which I'm not fluent in. So I had to heavily rely on Google Translate. Therefore, I'm not sure if the groups organize people to essentially squat to put pressure on the government to repurpose the buildings, or if once people are already living in these abandoned spaces, then the groups come in and help them secure government funding. Okay, gotcha. Regardless or not, if they encourage people to occupy spaces, The organizations work to secure permission and funding to repurpose these occupied spaces into affordable housing. 
They focus on finding vacant buildings in downtown areas of large cities because people there have access to services, schools, jobs, hospitals, and work. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. And it sounds very similar to what Jane was creating, too. Exactly. What surprised me was that a large majority of the owners of these alternative housing spaces are women. Women tend to make up a big number of homeless people because most of them are running away from violence. That's why the ladies are so committed to the movement because they see the overlooked, overwhelming need these women have for safe housing, just like Jane did. Yeah, that's cool. I can definitely see a connection with Jane and how these women are working to acquire spaces for people to live and give them better opportunities. Really interesting groups. Yeah, for sure. Before we sign off, we want to say thanks, Sugars, to CMYK <laughs> for the music. John W., our technical producer. And most of all, thank y'all for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Jane and women leading the fight for housing in Brazil, along with our banter, and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Again, thanks, everybody. <laughs> Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your landlords, your school administrators, your local activists and big social reform groups, and tell them to give us five stars on iTunes and write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com, leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. Until then, bye. Bye. Goodbye. Oh. Sorry, you sounded your accent was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I was channeling I was channeling um Mrs. <laughs> you did you sounded yeah, because it sounded very like uppity white lady. Like <laughs> oh well. <laughs> so when Denise tries to sound like a southern black woman, she sounds like an uppity white woman. Yeah. I'll work on my accents. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones. 
sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> I did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.